I'm Lynn Wolf, and welcome to this edition of our Rural Lifestyle Dealer podcast series, Measuring Up, the financial metrics every dealer should know. Today's program features Rex Collins, a principal of HBK CPAs and Consultants, who directs the firm's nationwide dealership industry group. He has worked extensively in the dealership industry since 1984 as a department manager, a general manager, and an owner, as well as providing tax, accounting, transactional, and operational consulting services exclusively to dealers. This podcast is brought to you by Yanmar. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Subscribing means you will receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they are released. Thank you to Yanmar for bringing us this podcast. Don't settle for less when you can have more. For example, Yanmar makes all its compact tractors, major drivetrain components, the Yanmar engine, transmission and axles all in-house. Because they're made to work perfectly together, you and your customers get a hardworking machine with more usable horsepower, less power loss, and a smoother, more comfortable ride. Yanmar's tractors are designed to work as hard as you do for a lifetime. Strengthen your dealership with Yanmar. Email them at agmarketing at yanmar.com or call 770-877-9894. Over the past five years, there has been nothing steady when it comes to the business levels for dealers selling outdoor power equipment, according to data gathered in the United Equipment Dealers Association's Cost of Doing Business Study. Rural Lifestyle Dealer has been analyzing dealers' performances and key financial metrics in its Measuring Up series. Rex Collins, a principal of HBK CPAs and Consultants, consulted on the study and offers insights to dealers regarding the financial ratios they should be measuring and the benchmarks they should be striving to achieve. Well, thank you, Rex, for talking with us today about financial metrics and the United Equipment Dealers Cost of Doing Business study. Before we dive into the numbers, can you give us some background on, on your work with dealers? Certainly. I'm probably the strangest CPA that anyone's ever going to talk to. I am probably the only CPA that most dealers have met who actually have, has run a service department. I've GM'd a dealership and actually owned a dealership for a while. So my background is uh, very much in this industry. I- I've worked exclusively with dealers since 1987. And I, and I do head up our dealership industry group at HBK, which is an exciting and d- dynamic, uh, unique team. I've got other uh, individuals on my team who have deep dealership experience. I've got a guy on my team who spent 12 years uh, running, managing a service department at a dealership. So we've got that uh, hands-on, in-depth experience that a lot of the dealers like. Generally, what we try to do is work closely with our dealers to become that go-to resource. Even if we don't know the answer, we oftentimes have relationships and can refer in the right expert the right uh, person to help them through their problems. And, and at the end of the day, our work generally increases our clients' profitability, either through 
reduced taxes and expenses or through increased gross profits, which, you know, the name of the game with the benchmarking and the, the metrics is squeezing more. It's not about what you make. It's about what you keep. Well, good, good. We, yeah, we appreciate this, the pr- perspective that you can offer our dealers. And um, as we dive into this topic now of the United Equipment Dealers Association's uh, cost of doing biz- business study, um, can you comment uh, just overall on the uh, key measurements that dealers should be watching, why it's critical that they track these measurements? Sure. It, it is critical that, uh, that dealers measure their performance against good, solid benchmarks, not just against themselves, against some good, solid benchmarks. You know, there are, there are a few quotes that I use when I, when I talk about this. One is the, is the old standby that from Albert Einstein that almost everyone has heard that, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But there's another quote that I use in trying to convey this, which is, you cannot improve what you cannot or do not measure. And going on beyond that, and that was from Lord Kelvin, but going on beyond that, when we deal in generalities, we seldom succeed. When we deal in specifics, we seldom fail. Furthermore, when when performance is measured, performance improves. When performance is measured and reported, the rate of improvement accelerates, and that's the Pearson principle. So overall, that that's not unique to dealerships, but it but it's uh, kind of communicating the flavor of why benchmarking is is important for all businesses. Now, because of my specialization in dealerships, I've got a few things that I'd like to say about uh, why it's critical for dealers specifically. And what we get from the cost of doing business study is the fact that industry members, participants can compare their own company's financial performance statistics Against other dealers, they can compare them as a whole, compare based upon sales volume, compare within similar lines of businesses, compare by region. And then we've got a further metric that we often talk about. I refer to it as best in class. Others refer to it as the high profit responders. But what we're doing there, Lynn, is as we benchmark, the the dealer is able to spot some significant differences between their own company's performance and these comparables or these metrics. And that can be the first step towards improving uh, their own performance. But there are a few things that I would suggest that dealers, as they're looking at this, they do keep in mind. First is a, a deviation between your company's figures, really for any of the performance measures, and the numbers in the cost of doing business study is not necessarily good or bad. It merely indicates that additional analysis is required. And realistically, as a general rule, the larger the difference, the greater the need for further further work, further investigation. The second item to point out is that in situations where large deviations are found, it's gonna be helpful to go back and review over the last few years, the same performance measure for your company to identify any trends that may exist there. The third point that I'd like to make with regards to this comparison process is is that benchmarks should be used as a tool for informed decision-making rather than absolute standards. Since companies 
uh, differ as to their sales and customer emphasis, location size, mix, many other factors. Any two companies can be successful, yet their metrics are going to be different. And that doesn't mean one is better or worse than the other. Another caution that I make for dealers is just relying on looking at your dollar figures versus your percentages of your ratios. It, it is important to analyze financial information in dollars and cents, clearly. We, we can't spend percentages. We can only spend net income in dollars, not income, net income as a percentage. So it's essential, though, that percentages and ratios be used if the data is to be compared to past performance or these metrics as reported in the cost of doing business study. An easy example that I make is that while it's helpful to recognize what your annual compensation expense is, it's even more essential to compare this expenditure really with the benefit that it's producing, with with the output that it's getting. So the way to look at that is a particularly useful measure of the effectiveness of your compensation is as a percentage that the payroll expense represents relative to sales or even gross margin. Accordingly, uh, a ratio as total payroll expense as a percent of sales or gross margin can be useful in determining how your company actually is using or deploying its payroll dollars over time when compared to its peer group. Another point to make is that just as dollars are not overly meaningful by themselves, ratios can provide an extremely accurate overall picture of the financial performance, financial position, financial health of the dealership. And uh, really, maybe the, the last point there, before I maybe talk about some specific measurements that I like to look at, is even for those dealers that are just going to do maybe a simple or relatively simple or cursory review of your organization's own figures and comparing that, this comparison can often yield, even on a rudimentary level, some pretty uh, important insights into their businesses. You really don't need to be a financial expert to benefit from this information. There, there, are, uh, there are some specific items that I recommend that dealers look at. And uh, there are two very specific ones that I, that I talk about most frequently. If I'm anytime I'm looking at a dealership, there are two items that I look at. Whether I'm looking at that dealership from a transaction basis, uh, I've got a dealer who's looking to buy the dealership, or I've got a dealer who's looking to sell their dealership, or I'm looking at it from first metrics on getting to know the dealer. There are two two metrics that I look at: the gross profit per employee, and oftentimes I'll look at that on a on a departmental basis, and then uh, absorption or fixed coverage. Lynn, I'm gonna assume you want me to go a little further with the gross profit per employee with both of these metrics and maybe talk about them a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And then with absorption, if you could also um, explain how that's figured as well. I, I certainly will. Um, gross profit em- per employee is, is one of those items that I look at because it tells me basically how effective are my employees? What, what 
kind of end results am I getting with this staff? If I've hired a hundred employees at this dealership, what revenue is that staff generating or supporting? Because it counts everyone. And this is a good time to bring up the fact that bad data can lead to bad decisions. I don't know how many times I do this initial calculation based upon numbers that are reported to me. And I say, hey, your, your gross profit per employee is too low. Or it might be extremely high, but generally it's too low. And then we go back and we dig deeper and we find out, well, their employee count is not correct. It's an old employee count and they haven't kept that up. So bad data can lead to bad decisions. But the gross profit per employee is a pretty simple calculation. It takes your gross profit for the dealership or for the department, and it divides that by the number of employees in the dealership in total or in that department. And it's really on full-time equivalents, just so you know, so that we're measuring apples to apples when we start comparing dealerships to one another. Excluding technicians, the average benchmark is about $200,000 per employee. Our high performers are are really realizing about $50,000 per employee more than that on an annual basis. So why do I look at this? First of all, because it emphasizes my talent and the focus on talent. Second, there really are no adjustments for accounting conventions that I have to make. In essence, gross profit is pretty well defined. Pretty much everybody in the industry calculates it the same way. And the same cost of sales components are in there. So I can compare easily uh, one dealership to another or dealer groups to other dealer groups. And, and it is a, an output-based measure. Now, I do get a question, Lynn, from time to time, fairly consistently, actually. Uh, why are you looking at gross profit per employee versus revenue per employee? Because that is another metric that's, that's put out there is revenue per employee. The reason I do that is I'm really more concerned, again, with what we make, not what we sell. I can sell, and this happened in a parts department, believe it or not. Their pay plan was based upon sales revenue, and uh, the parts manager and parts employees uh, towards the end of the month started selling parts at losses or at least at uh, rather anemic gross profits so that they could hit their bonus plateaus. So sales per employee was really high, but the gross profit per employee was really low. And so I really want to focus on on profitability. Does that make sense, what I'm saying, Lynn? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that's a good uh, caution for, for dealers focusing too much on, on just sales. Right. Now, the other topic, uh, the, the second uh, metric that I look at almost universally is fixed absorption. And fixed absorption is the ability of the parts, service, and if the dealer is doing rental operations, including the rental operations, the ability of those departments to produce sufficient gross profit dollars to cover the total, and by total, I do mean total, overhead expenses of the entire dealership. The average dealer is running about 68%. The high performers are running about 82%. And we actually put the metric out there for our dealers to be over 100%. As a matter of fact, our our goal metric is 115% fixed coverage or fixed absorption. And what that means at that point is those dealers who have generated sufficient gross profit, 100% gross profit, are in the fixed operations to cover all of the overhead expenses, 
they're almost recession-proof. What that means is every dollar of whole goods sales goes straight to the bottom line. It's a nice position to be in. Calculating uh, fixed absorption is one of the most important business strength measurements that a serious dealership manager, investor, dealer principal can make. Um, again, fixed absorption is a simple calculation. It's the gross profit generated by these fixed departments, service parts and rental, divided by the total dealership expenses. A, a dealer whose fixed departments are covering only 60% of their gross profit or overhead expense is at a significant disadvantage when compared to a dealer that's a best-in-class dealer running 82% or so. So it's, it's often one of the first areas that we can focus on. I want to mention what I mentioned earlier. Just getting a number and generating a number for the number's sake is one thing. Knowing how to make that number work for you is more important. So let's say I've got a, a low, I've got an average deal, and I'm wanting to be uh, above average. I'm wanting to be one of the high performers uh, at 82% or even beyond that and get to one of these excellent dealers at 115. If my number's low, well, is it the fact that I'm not generating enough gross profit in my fixed departments? Or is my overhead, is my expense structure too high? Well, I don't know. I just know that metric is, is off. So it, it forces me to dig deeper. Let's say I go in and I say, you know what? My overhead expenses are too high. Well, now I get to dig even deeper. Which expenses are too high? And again, we can use the cost of doing business study to help us determine which, which of these expenses are out around. And then it's a matter of doing something about it, not just identifying, hey, I'm too high in this expense, now I've got to go look at what makes up that expense and then look even to specific vendor contracts or whatever it, whatever it might be. The billings, have I not negotiated my insurance in a long while? You know, my property and casualty insurance or whatever it is that, that again, is, is causing that expense to be too high. But, it, but again, getting back to this fixed absorption, it could be your expenses are too high or it could be... Um, that we're not generating enough gross profit in the fixed departments, parts and service. Well, why am I not generating enough gross profit in those departments? It, it comes down to process failures, really, Len, when we start talking about that. What's draining our service profit? I'll just focus on service right now uh, as one of those elements that it could be. Oftentimes, it's process failures. These processes have either been poorly designed or they're not being followed. It can result from waste, redundancies, bottlenecks, unnecessary technology being used. And, and that falls into four categories for the typical shop. Shop organization or lack thereof. The lot organization or problems with it. Obtaining parts or just general information flow. Getting information back to the service manager so that he can communicate or the service advisor communicate with the customer what needs to be done to get approval for that. Reducing waste and turning more work has the added benefit of reducing customer downtime. So the customers like you, if their equipment isn't in the field, it's not working for them. So it's going to improve their uh, profitability, lower their operating costs improving referrals to us, which is very egocentric for the dealer, but hey, 
let's do the right thing for the customer and it ends up doing the right, having the right benefit for us as well. It enables, if we're doing this right also, increasing this throughput there, it enables the technician to stay in the bay, to be in the bay, the service bay, turning wrenches as opposed to doing something else, generating service revenue and gross. And because of the long-term effects of keeping our customers happy, they're likely to do more service work with us. But also when we keep them happy and we can really perform under the promises that we make, we get a lot of referrals. So our customer base grows. And all that adds to increased profits, increased service absorption. And not only is that good for the dealer, but the dealership's employees end up making more. Their commissions are higher. Their uh, bonuses are bigger. Their actual job satisfaction goes up as well. Um, so at any rate, I, 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 maybe I went down a tangent there, but, but I, I guess the point I want to make with, with that is we may be looking at doing uh, the calculation for one metric, in this case, absorption or fixed coverage. But how many different routes can we go down to fix the problems that are resulting in those poor metrics, that poor metric specifically. We'll rejoin the discussion, but I did want to take a moment and again thank our sponsor Yanmar for making this program possible. Using ever-advancing technology, Yanmar continuously strives to exceed customer expectations and deliver exceptional lifetime value by integrating its products, services, and knowledge into a superior quality, comprehensive solution. Visit them at yamartractor.com backslash new dealer inquiry. So far in this podcast, Rex Collins of HBK CPAs and Consultants has explained two important metrics that dealerships should be measuring and analyzing, gross profit per employee and absorption rate. He says, depending on the industry served, high-performing dealers are achieving $250,000 gross profit per employee and a 115% absorption rate. Let's get back to the program and hear how dealers can better manage one of their largest expenses, salaries and benefits, along with understanding how to make the best use of working capital and achieving the optimal debt-to-equity ratio. One question I had related to this this topic that you're you're talking about here related to expenses and and controlling ex- expenses is um, when we looked at the the study um, the expenses associated with salaries and benefits were the single highest expense um, in any year given year of the study. So can you talk about um, from my standpoint it looks like those are very difficult to to control when you have a certain number of employees and you've um, set your compensation. Can you talk about how that can be fixed? Yep, absolutely. And I I like to talk through examples. I worked with a a dealer client. Um, They happen to be in New York, but it doesn't really matter. Um, And uh, he, by his own admission, had had, uh, let the the inmates run the asylum, so to speak. Uh, What it amounted to was basically 90% of his payroll costs were pretty much fixed. And it was close to 90%. That is not what we like to see. 
this is a very cyclical business. And we like to see when times are good, our employees, and they're doing more and they're working, they're delivering more products, selling more whole goods, doing more service work, whatever that is, they're going to benefit through higher compensation. But we like for it to be scalable as well, that when, when times slow down, and I do understand everyone has to put, be able to put food on their family's table. I get that. But it needs to be able to be flexible enough to come down. What we've actually done is, is we've developed uh, a product that we call the dealership funding formula. And uh, it, it goes through. We work with the dealer on developing uh, compensation plans that reward our employees. Absolutely, because we are nothing without our employees. If we have the right employees doing the right jobs, we're going to be profitable and we're going to deliver a good value to our customers. So that's without saying. But we can design individual pay plans for individual jobs to motivate, to incentivize, if I can make up a word, the proper uh, efforts to get the proper results for the dealership. And those should be changed periodically. I am not one of these people that says, hey, design a pay plan for everybody, and five years from now, the pay plans look exactly the same. They really shouldn't because you have other items that need to be mo where you have to put motivation, and it's a carrot and stick type motivation, and it's right in the hip pocket. Um, I get it. We do like to have a very warm and, and welcoming workforce or workplace, all of that, but um, a lot of what I've found over the years is motivation through the hip pocket. This dealership funding formula does more than that's, that's kind of step one is getting the base pay plans in place. But this dealership funding formula starts with, okay, we have to have, we have to make a certain amount of profit. Uh, the business does just to be able to generate additional working capital be, to be retained in the business to support any growth that we expect or we want to have, and everybody wants to be in a growing business. Um, so we've got to take those first dollars of net profit, and those have to be retained just to keep the proper care and feeding of the business entity or the golden goose, so to speak. Then the second piece of the, piece of the puzzle is, hey, we've got owners who have made large, large capital investments, and they should get some sort of a reasonable return on their investment um, before anything else happens. So we, we help come up with what that reasonable return on investment is uh, for the owners. And then beyond that, there should be some sharing to properly motivate all employees. And, and I really do mean all employees. Every employee from the janitor through to the chief executive officer should get some piece of the pie that is above and beyond this minimum standard in the dealership funding formula that we put out there. And if we do all that, compensation remains fluid. So in good times, they're going to get paid extremely well. But when times slow down, it's going to be scaled back to where the dealership doesn't go bankrupt because of all the pay plans that are out there. But it's going to properly motivate everyone in the organization to be pulling on the same end of the rope to achieve the total dealership goals. And that's everyone literally from, from the, the lot tech all the way up to your number one salesperson. 
So it's really important in that case for the dealers to communicate that properly because there's so much of, um, you know, the Christmas bonus that people have come to it, come to expect, but they really need to communicate how that might change. Right. And, and that's exactly right. And what we'll, what we'll typically do when we launch this uh, dealership funding formula concept is we will have meetings with the uh, employees and say, hey, here's what's going on. And we will give monthly or quarterly updates as to where we're going on the goal. And we may even do quarterly or semi-annual payouts. Now, they wouldn't be 100% payouts. We'll keep something in case we have some loser months in later in the year. But we want to tell everybody, we want to let everyone know, here are the metrics, and we're going to publish these metrics that are going to result in additional pay for you, okay? And then reward them as they're achieving those um, to a certain degree, to, a, to a, the a degree to which we're comfortable. Um, and like I say, you can always have a great spring and then the summer, everything walk backwards. And, uh, and so you, you don't want to put everything out there to the employees on a monthly basis because it, it's awfully difficult to, to say, hey, you remember what I paid you in March? Uh, now it's June. I need you to give that back to me because we had some dry months. So we don't do that. But that reinforces and gets the buy-in from everyone. And we'll even, more to your point, Lynn, is we will even do a dry launch with this where we'll say, hey, everybody, here's for last year what you would have gotten or for last quarter or whatever, if we would have been under this um, and let everybody get used to that and then do a launch maybe mid-year through midway through the year or at the beginning of the following year or something like that. So everybody understands that what, what we can overcome the employee's biggest fear. And I'm sorry to stammer there a little bit, but, but the employee's biggest fear is anytime you're changing a pay plan, that you're getting in my hip pocket. And that's not what we're trying to do. We're actually trying to, to create a larger compensation pool for everyone. I met with a dealer last night who their metrics, when you look at their total metrics for expense, they're right on. But if you looked at their compensation metric, they are way off on it. Too high, too high, Lynn. But that's by design. And they have made the decision, strategic decision, that we are going to have the absolute best um, employee workforce that we can have. And we're willing to pay for that, whether that's, quote unquote, poaching employees from other dealers or whatever it is. But they don't want they don't want pay to be an issue for anybody when when they look to losing an employee, potentially, to leaving the dealership. It, it can't be by pay. And what they've got is they've got a lot of long-tenured employees who are high performers, and their net profit percentage, okay, is really, really good. And they feel like it's all a direct result of those employees, those customer-facing employees. Yeah, that's an interesting example because it goes back to the point you made about you know knowing your dealership and and um, you know customizing your um, your measures of success based on on your own dealership. Right, and and you know I haven't said this, but part of this measurement process has to go back into, and it should be part of 
the uh, strategic plan uh, that the dealership has put in place. And I'll be honest with you, most of the dealers that I work with really don't have a strategic plan in place, but I would encourage them to look at that to try to incorporate this. And one of the things that they should look at is getting back to the fixed absorption. It needs to be a key element of any strategic plan. It really should be one of those items that's, that's one of the leading indicators that a dealer uh, looks at. And again, I want to emphasize our top, top, top dealers are running 115% or more uh, fixed charge, which is phenomenal. Definitely. On that topic as well, are there different metrics that, for instance, struggling dealers should pay more attention to or dealers that are growing that are should pay more attention to? Can you talk about those kinds of dealers? I, I certainly can. One thing that I, I would... Um, I would, there are two items maybe there that I'm going to talk about. First, look at your working capital. Don't outgrow your resources if you're looking to grow too, too fast, which is one of the ends of the spectrum that you're talking about. And working capital is a pretty straightforward formula. It's current assets plus qualified loans to the dealership from shareholders, sometimes entitled subordinated debt from the owners, plus if the dealer's on LIFO, which most of our clients are on LIFO, we add back the life reserve at 60%. That other 40% is just pulling out something for what would be due for income taxes if they were to get off LIFO. But we add that back because it's really just additional uh, working capital. And from that total, we deduct the current liabilities. Now, some manufacturers, just so you know, some manufacturers, when they look at and set their uh, working capital objective, they subtract all uh, uh, current liabilities plus long-term net uh, from from that in arriving at working capital. Now, working capital is a measure of the short-term liquidity of the business. And what it really is doing is it's measuring the ability of, of management to utilize um, the assets in an efficient uh, uh, manner. The other item that I would suggest that, uh, that dealers in the situation that you're talking about look at is debt to equity. And uh, debt to equity is a pretty simple measurement. It's your total liabilities um, divided by the total shareholders' equity or investment that the shareholders have made, including the retained earnings. Um, and the average dealer is about a 2.2 um, to 1. Uh, debt to equity, but the high-performing dealers are at about a one-to-one. So the question that I get from that point and a follow-up point that I'd like to make is, do you want a high or a low debt to equity ratio? Well, I just said that the high-performing dealers are lower than the, than the average dealers, so that would seem to imply that we want a, uh, a low debt to equity ratio. But here's my question. If I have too low a debt-to-equity ratio, that may indicate that the dealership may not be taking advantage or at least full advantage of the increased opportunity for profitability that financial leverage can bring. An old axiom is that we like to make money using other people's money. And what that amounts to is 
if I can make money using borrowed money, hey, that's less of an investment that I've got there. And if I can borrow money from the bank at, say, 5%, and I am turning that into 15%, you know, money, profit for myself. Hey, how's that a bad thing? Okay. Uh, I've made 10 points on that. Um, so that's a good thing. But at the same point, Lynn, what are the problems of having too high a debt-to-equity ratio? Well, a high debt-to-equity ratio indicates that the company may not be able to generate enough cash to pay its bills. Well, that's called being bankrupt, and nobody wants to be in that position. So there tends to be, with most of these metrics, something of a sweet spot, and that sweet spot is going to vary based upon your specific circumstances and based upon the client base that you're handling. Um, large, large ag equipment, different sweet spot than, than small ag or uh, dairy farmers versus row crop versus. And, and so it just you have to look and customize this stuff for your own business operations. Well, let's uh, step outside the dealership a little bit and and look at uh, or talk about what other either economic or industry influencers that dealers should also be watching to prepare their dealership for success. Absolutely, and um, we've got a we've got a wild card sitting in the White House right now. Um, I think that uh, that everybody that's listening to this, whether a Trump supporter or not, uh, would say that that it's a change. It's a definite change. So what I would suggest, one thing that oftentimes doesn't get mentioned enough in looking into the crystal ball is the regulatory environment and the regulatory impact. Um, the Affordable Care Act is, is front and center on the news right now. Um, so how is a repeal or a lack of repeal going to impact your business and your expense structure? I did an acquisition recently, a dealer group was buying another dealership. We got the historical financial statements. We started digging deeper. We started looking at their uh, benefits uh, expense line. And we said, wow, that's really inexpensive. What are they doing? Well, what we found was their benefits package was really low. And as a matter of fact, we were prohibited from through regulatory, by regulatory means, from offering the same package that they were offering to, to go into the weeds a little bit. Basically, you can't discriminate amongst one set of employees versus another set. So we were offering at our other, I don't remember, seven locations, let's say, an employee benefits package, a health insurance package, so on and so forth. And we had to bring the new acquisition, one point, up to that position. Well, the, the sum total of that was a $250,000 increase in employee benefit for that dealership, that one point. It took what, uh, what looked like a very nice operation to maybe it isn't so nice. Um, so the regulatory means can, can come up in, the regulatory changes, I'm sorry, can come up in through all kinds of avenues. Obviously, beware of taxes. Beware of the Affordable Care Act, for one. But the, uh, President Trump, when he took office, indicated that he wanted to eliminate 
uh, roughly 70, 75%, I believe it was 70% of all regulations. Well, he can do that. And he can do that by looking at, if you dig a little deeper, by looking at just a few uh, agencies. An environmental protection agency is one of those. Uh, so the tree huggers, uh, if you will, and I don't mean that in a derogatory term, but um, those are the special interest groups that are opposing that. But what happens to your customers if there's a change in the regulatory environment that impacts them directly? What's going to happen to your business? And so look through those, uh, those things as well. With regards to just my, just one man's opinion from an economic standpoint, we, we still have problems that everyone needs to, to pay attention to. We still have roughly three uh, times the demand uh, for or three-year supply. Let's put it another way. We have a three-year supply of used large ag equipment on the ground right now at dealerships or uh, at jockeys or elsewhere available for the dealer, for the uh, end users to buy. Well, that's going to tell, what that tells me is we haven't quite come out of this problem with, we're better than we were, but we haven't come out of this problem in the, in the used equipment area. Then add to that the fact that the large ag equipment makers, the manufacturers have a capacity that is two and a half times the annual demand for large ag equipment. Well, that also tells me this problem isn't going to go away anytime soon because um, the uh, the manufacturers don't want to voluntarily give up market share. So there's a, the business is tougher now than it's ever been, and I sound like an old fogey, and maybe I am, um, but it's gotten more and more complicated. It hasn't gotten easier, um, and you just have to keep your finger on the pulse and you know, it's more than just the weather, I guess, that's going to drive, drive the success of your business. It's a lot more than, your, than the weather. Um, inventory mix, having clear and solid metrics on, on um, uh, day supply of inventory, um, whether that's new, used, parts, breaking that new inventory down to uh, by line and by product type that's going to lead to your your profitability as well. Yeah, and we've on the rural lifestyle side, we've we've had some pretty good years, definitely. And um, but dealers need to watch and need to watch home building and and other factors as well to 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 be ready and um, you know take advantage of the good times. So um, good. Okay. Well, we've covered a lot of topics, and thank you for all the specifics. Is there any other last message that you wanted to share with our listeners about um, the study or metrics or just doing business in general? Um, you know, I, I think I kind of covered, uh, covered everything. Um, you know, the, the examples um, that I gave of metrics to follow are, are just examples. There's much more than that, and you really need to uh, customize this to your own business. There are a couple of comments, I guess, in closing that I'll make about the cost of doing business study. Um, first of all, we had more respondents this year than we had last year. Uh, that just helps make the, the um, uh, it was up by about 13%, actually. So it makes the reliability of the study all that better. Um, uh, net income was down uh, second year in a row uh, that it was down for the, for the dealers. Um, uh, sales declined, but gross profit was up. 
over the prior year. Now, only slightly, but it was. Um, interest expenses down and, and uh, year over year, and it was down pretty substantially. Um, and it seems to be down not because rates went down. Everybody knows that. It seemed to go down because of proper inventory management um, practices being implemented and being followed. Um, and uh, getting back to what we've spent a lot of time talking about, uh, as you pointed out, uh, compensation uh, has remained pretty steady as a percentage um, over the study, over the study years. And it, it remained pretty flat again this year as well. Thank you again to Rex Collins for explaining the numbers behind the United Equipment Dealers Association's cost of doing business study. The old saying is true, you can't improve what you don't measure. And just as important, dealers need to understand what is influencing those measurements so they can make smart, informed financial decisions. Take the next step for your dealership and download the free Quick Read Measuring Up series to dive deeper into the numbers and drive success at your dealership. Go to rulelifestyledealer.com backslash measuring up. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Yanmar, for helping make this Rural Lifestyle Dealer podcast series possible. And please share your feedback on today's program by sending an email to lwolf at lessetermedia.com or call me at 316-648-3717. You can keep up on the latest rural equipment news and trends by registering online for our e-newsletter and be sure to follow us on Twitter at RLD Editors and on our Rural Lifestyle Dealer Facebook page. Stay tuned for additional podcasts from our experts and dealers. From all of us at Rural Lifestyle Dealer, I'm Lynn Wolf, and thanks for listening. <music>